You're listening to Sweet Talk, All Things Maple. Welcome to Sweet Talk, All Things Maple. I'm Adam Wild, co-director of the Cornell Maple Program and director of the E-Line Maple Research Forest in Lake Placid, New York. Joining me from the Sugar House at the Arnott Forest is my colleague and fellow co-director of the Cornell Maple Program, Aaron Whiteman. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Adam. It's nice to finally step away from the evaporator and get back in the studio. Yes, it is a snowy day here in New York, so it's a great day for watching the snowfall and enjoying a short break from maple sap runs. You know, although our season has barely started up here yet, but you're probably near the end of your season. Well, we started making syrup on February 9th, and typically we boil through the second week of April. So in theory, here on March 14th as we're recording this, we should be about halfway through our season. However, I am seeing some signs of dropping tap hole production in parts of my system with warmer microclimates, so we might be past the halfway point in terms of production. But as we know, maple syrup yields are famously difficult to predict, and we'll just have to wait to see how things play out over the next few weeks. Have you made much syrup at the Eline Forest? We have had a few sap flow events, even starting back in mid-February, and made a little bit of syrup. But since then, the weather has kind of dropped down and gotten cold and just hovered right around or below the freezing point, you know, not enough to really kickstart sap flow. Is your syrup on the lighter or darker side this year? Well, that's an interesting question because color grade is quite honestly not something I think about too much. I'm really more interested in flavor quality and invert sugar levels. So at the beginning of the season, I try to make low invert syrup. So I have that for confections research. And now I'm experimenting with methods to intensify flavor. And flavor is really what it's all about, right? We measure color because it's an easily measured attribute that correlates somewhat strongly to flavor. But for research purposes, I can just cut to the chase and figure out how to make the best flavors possible. Yeah, that's a great comment. Flavor is number one. How has your sap sweetness been this year? You know, What are you hearing from others? Well, our sap sugar content... As you know, it's always a little bit low at the Arnott Forest. So we've been hovering around 1.8, 1.9, which is about average for us. So I'm not complaining and I'm not hearing complaints from other people in the region, at least in western and central New York, about their sap sugar content. So I think it's OK this year, but I haven't haven't really heard a lot of commentary on that. So I think we'll maybe we'll see in the postmortem after the season's over. Yeah, that's true. You know, usually we only hear about sap sugar when it's below average. And I've only heard good things about sap sweetness this year, so I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but we will find out at the end of the season. For what we have collected here of sap, I would say that it's on the average side for the Eline Forest as well. Yeah, you usually have pretty good sap sugar content. And as I said, ours is a little lower at the Arnott Forest. And interestingly, we do tap quite a few red maple trees. Nearly 25% of our taps at the Arnott Forest are red maples. Yeah, that can sometimes play a factor, you know, but those red maples can still produce a lot of sap. Yes, definitely. There are a lot of theories and myths about tapping red maples, and some of them are true, but some of them are just that. They're just myths without any data to back them up. Yes, there is a lot of unclear information on red maples, but our colleague Dr. Abby Vandenberg at the University of Vermont has been doing some great research the past few years to either support or debunk those myths around tapping red maples. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Vandenberg to discuss her research. Dr. Vandenberg is always providing great data to back up the many questions we have in the maple industry. And I'm excited to hear what she shared with you. Hello, Abby. Welcome to Sweet Talk. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. 
Glad to have you back on for another episode here. And today I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your research that you've done recently looking at the difference between tapping red maple and sugar maple. So historically, people have kind of been a little biased against red maple and sometimes even not tapping them at all and walking past to only tap sugar maple. So I want to start out asking you kind of why have people been biased against red maple? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think some of those lingering biases result from sometimes it's past experience and sometimes it's just things that aren't relevant with modern collection practices. So some of the reasons why producers might have been a little bit reluctant to tap them is because of some experience predominantly with bucket collection there is at least a perceived tendency for red maples to have a lower sap sugar content. And while, you know, we can talk later about whether that's true or not, but because of that, and especially with previous production practices without the use of reverse osmosis, that lower sap sugar content could actually make a pretty significant dent in the economics of transforming that sap into syrup. So If there is lower sap sugar content, that's a really good reason to actually walk past it with a bucket if you don't have RO. But of course, that's not so relevant currently because of the use of reverse osmosis, that lower sap sugar content shouldn't really have an impact at all. So I think that some of that kind of translated into a perception that they have lower overall yields sort of across the season in total syrup. And then Some other reasons that people are maybe a little bit or seem to have some reluctance is that perception of lower yields, that's one. And then the idea that they might stop running earlier or develop late season off flavor earlier. And of course, there seems to be some perception that they might have an inferior flavor to the syrup. So there's kind of all these things factoring in and many of them, there's just no data whatsoever. And some of them where there is a little bit of data just aren't so relevant with modern collection practices. That's interesting that you mentioned, you know, these are perceived kind of factors and that, you know, there really isn't that data out there. Right. And so that's why it was important for you to go out there and collect some of this research data. Right. And especially not a lot of data with modern collection practices. So like under vacuum conditions, like good vacuum conditions with good sanitation, that data just wasn't there. Are there a lot of red maples out there kind of in, quote unquote, the maple belt where most maple production happens? You know, is it is it worthwhile to look into this? I guess, you know, are we missing out on a lot of trees by not tapping red maples? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the site. But, you know, throughout the maple belt, the broader maple belt, particularly, there are quite a few red maples that are available to tap or untapped in sugar bushes, again, kind of depending on the site. Sometimes you just don't have it, but a lot of sugar bushes really do have them, or a lot of areas adjacent to current sugar bushes may have them. So a study done by your predecessor, uh, Dr. Mike Farrell, a few years ago, really identified using FIA data, the untapped potential, both in sugar and red maple. And, you know, it clearly in that study shows that especially in particular areas of the maple belt, there are enormous numbers of red maple available to be tapped. Um, And that, because red maple also has a pretty big geographic range and it can grow and compete successfully on a large number of site conditions and a wide range of sort of climate conditions, we find red maples more and more prevalent in places sort of in the 
more southern reaches of the maple production area. So places like North Carolina and West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, like so there are a lot of red maples, especially as we go toward the outer edges of the maple region. At the Proctor Maple Research Center, have you been tapping red maples as part of your, you know, general collection system or has that been avoided there historically? We have, for as long as I've been here, we've tapped red maples without another thought. We do keep an inventory of that, but it's just a practice that has, at least for my time here, which is now kind of long, (laughs) we've just (laughs) always done it. How about you uh, at the E-Lines? Yeah, we do tap. Most of our red maple are located in areas that weren't tapped until the last 10 years, I would say. Kind of some of our lower area where there's a lot of softwoods where the red maple are kind of mixed in and our reworking of some of our main lines go through those areas now. And so we are picking those up. I estimate that we're probably tapping about 10% of our trees are soft maple or the red maple. That's interesting. Our percentage is higher, but it's kind of the same situation here. They're just areas in our property that, you know, because of the site characteristics, they tend to have more red maple and and we do use those for production. I think it's important to note here for those who, I guess, aren't familiar with red maple and that their leaves are not red. I know I grew up learning that the maple tree out in front of our house was a red maple. And then when I went off to college and took dendrology class in my first lab, learned that that red maple tree was actually a cultivar of a Norway maple, the Crimson King, and that a red maple actually has green leaves in the summertime, right? Oh my God. That is like <laughs> an ultimate disclosure. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll admit that. So I, I quickly had to learn, and I think, you know, most people may know that red maples don't actually have red leaves, but they do have red leaves in the fall time, right? Right. Almost always. They have a very prominent red coloration in the fall, a little bit more consistently than sugar maple, which tends to have a more variable display of colors, let's say. But lots of parts of red maples are often red, like the bud scales. Uh, We often see red petioles. There's lots of red in their samaras on their fruit. So it's a pretty aptly named species, in my opinion. Yeah, no, definitely is fitting once you learn more about the tree. So, and I think it's also important to note that some people call them soft maples because the wood is softer. So if you're a forester or a you know woodworker, you may call it a soft maple. So just getting some of that clarification out of the way. Right. So going back to thinking about tapping red maples, are there benefits of actually tapping a red maple, any characteristics beyond what a sugar maple may have? Well, I think one of the main benefits, other than that, they may be an available crop tree species that you haven't taken advantage of. So that helps you increase your total productivity. One of the main benefits is that, you know, yes, red maple is a maple tree, but it is not exactly the same species as a sugar maple. So it has different characteristics and different life history factors. And because of this, it can help add diversity to our sugar bushes, which, you know, notoriously, there's been always this dance of, you know, you want your maximum crop trees, But of course, when we gear more and more towards a single species, it really puts our forest at risk for lots of factors like diseases and pests and even other stress events and windstorms and things like that. So by having red maple as a crop tree, it helps increase the diversity of our stands and gives them some resilience to some of these stresses like insects and diseases, 
while still contributing to our overall production in terms of our maple operations. So that is one of the big ones. And then, of course, the other sort of longer term benefit is that because red maples are these super adaptable trees and they can grow on a wide range of sites and that wide range of climate conditions, they are predicted to fare pretty well in the face of our changing climate as our climates warm and get more variable and unpredictable, red maples are predicted to increase in prevalence throughout the maple producing region. So, you know, they will become more and more of an important part of maple production in the future. So to debunk some of those myths, you know, you actually looked at maple sap characteristics from red maple and sugar maple. So you actually went out there and tapped separate individual maple trees, individual or sorry, individual sugar maple trees and individual red maple trees under vacuum to look at those different characteristics. And so was there a difference in the amount of sugar within the sap? Well, that's a very good question. So like you said, the first study that we did was just to determine, okay, like what what are the overall total yields from red maple trees if we're using good levels of vacuum, good sanitation like that? So to do that, we looked at the, the sap production from individual red and sugar maple trees in the same stand across two years. So we had a, a lot of data on individual trees, everywhere from nine up to 19 inches. And although there was a difference in the sap sugar concentration between the reds and the sugars in that stand, on average, it wasn't as big as we might think, but the average difference in sap sugar content between all the trees, and again, that's that's a lot of, it's basically 80 individual trees, 40 and 40. It was closer to between 0.2 and 0.4 percentage points difference across the season on average for all those trees. And, you know, there were some red maples that had very high concentrations and some that had low, but generally speaking, they they were consistently lower than sugars, but not by this like enormous amount, not by like 2% or anything like that. Yeah. So if you, if your sugar maple were say 2%, the red maple were somewhere around 1.8. Yeah. Or 1.6. Well, a little difference there, you know, especially if you're boiling on a an open fire or something like that. But with a reverse osmosis, that's not a huge difference. Right. And of course, the key factor here is that we were looking at the total yield. So we were looking at how much sap was produced and its sap sugar concentration, you know, to quantify the total syrup we would have made with the reds and the sugars in that study. And what we found was that the total syrup yields from the reds and sugar maples were not different from one another at all. So essentially, the red maples produced more total volume of sap with a little less sugar. But when you boil it down into maple syrup, it was the same. That's right. So in this study, the reds were producing a slightly higher volume of sap at a slightly lower sap sugar concentration than the sugar maples. And in the end, it would boil down to the same amount of actual syrup produced. That's really interesting to hear. So that kind of debunks that first myth that they can produce the same amount of syrup as a sugar maple. Was there a difference in the size of the trees? Did, you know, the nine inch trees very different from a 16 inch diameter tree? Uh, That's a really good question. Not in a way that was different between the two species. So, 
basically you see the same thing with reds as you do with sugars. The bigger the tree, the more sap is produced. So you see that pattern of it increasing sap and sugar production with increasing diameter. And I should mention that all the trees in this study were, um, you know, healthy. They had canopies that were co-dominant or dominant. So, you know, these are they're pretty robust trees, so they're not like little pipsqueaks that are suppressed on, in the understory or anything like that. So that's something important to note. Do you think the vacuum played a factor there? So if you didn't have vacuum, would the red maple produce less sap than a sugar maple that also was not on vacuum? Since I didn't look at these on gravity, I can't answer that question physiologically speaking, I don't really have a reason to say that there's any reason that they would behave differently on a gravity collection system versus a vacuum collection system. But since I only did the study under vacuum, that's really the only question I can answer. I do hear lots of producers say they produce less on buckets than sugar maple, et cetera, et cetera. But and, and I completely, you know, I'm always open to hearing experiences of producers for sure. It's where we get like some of our best leads and our best information, but just an observation like that without a controlled study, we, you know, the sugar maple that's right next to it, that's exactly the same size and exactly, you know, tapped in exactly the same way with repetition until we do that, we really can't say that there's a difference there. So that study would really need to be done. That was a long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> Appreciate the honest answer, and that's good to hear, but it's great that, you know, with vacuum they are producing equal amounts. So, what about throughout the season, you know, is the red maple producing more sap in the beginning of the season but not as much later in the season than the sugar maple or vice versa? Did you see any difference through the season? Yeah, that was one of the coolest things that we were able to see in the study is that the two species mirrored one another in their production. So, they followed the same patterns in terms of their productivity. The reds and the sugars did the same thing. So, you know, they're ramping up slowly with those little freeze thaws. And then on days where it was a big run for sugar maple, it was a big run for red maple and vice versa. So the patterns of production really mirrored each other across the season, including when the two species kind of stopped their sap flow. In our study, in the same stand, the two species stopped running at the same time. Hmm. That's one of those myths that red maples kind of bud out earlier, and so that sap flow could end sooner, right? Exactly. And actually, the truth is that it is really the floral buds that we see on the red maples swelling first. And if we really dig down into the literature and actually watch them, Sugar maples are a little earlier with their leaf buds than red maples are. It's kind of cool like that. Huh, interesting. And yeah, is that, the... that's a fun, fun random fact that probably is meaningless in this, but it's something <laughs> yeah, to know. I love those fun facts. Is the leaf buds the one that are contributing more of the, the quote-unquote buddiness into the you know late-season syrup? Yeah, that's why I said it's kind of a meaningless fact, because we don't know the answer to that question. We have these you know, terms like called buddy and things like that, because we do see changes, of course, in the way that sap flows and in the flavor that are associated with the development of buds and the, you know, the exiting of dormancy. But honestly, whether any of the changes that we observe have anything to do with the bud development, 
We actually don't know that. They may just be correlated, but not actually associated in, in any causative way. That's a important point to make there. Sounds like a great future project for you. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> we're, kind of, we're working on it a little bit, and I know you guys are too. But yeah, it's very interesting. But one has to assume that if you have enough metabolic activity that your floral buds are swelling, you know, there's probably some different things going on in the sap. What about the wound formation, kind of the compartmentalization when you tap a red maple versus a sugar maple? Is it similar? That's interesting. We didn't look at it in this current study because my former colleague, Tim Wilmot, who was the UVM extension maple specialist before Mark Iselhart was here, he actually looked at this and he did a wounding study in red maple. And ultimately what he found was that if a tap hole wound was made into clear red maple sapwood, that the volume of non-conductive wood generated by that wound was not different from the volume generated in sugar in response to a sugar maple wound of the same size. So like all things being equal, the wound response seems to be pretty similar. However, because red maple, it's a soft maple, so it does tend to be a little bit breaky. Red maples can have a good bit of pre-existing non-conductive wood, like from branch scars and things like that. So the chances of hitting some pre-existing non-conductive wood in a red maple could be higher than a sugar maple of the same size in the same situation. And when we encounter, basically when our drill bit encounters an area of already existing non-conductive wood, the compartmentalization of that new wound can be a little bit less robust. And so that ends up having more non-conductive wood. And then kind of the same thing, the other feature about red maples that makes tapping and thinking about tapping a little bit different is that they can have that larger central column of discolored wood. Like you might call it heartwood, but it's not true heartwood for any like wonky wood people out there. It's, it's just a central column of discolored wood. It tends to come more frequently in red maples that started life as a multi-stem because basically it's the result of early branch death. Anyway, so there's this big chunk of non-conductive wood in some red maples. So your depth of clear sapwood can actually, in red maples like that, be pretty shallow. And you can hit non-conductive wood with a, with a reasonably deep tap hole in a, in a red maple that has that feature. Wonky wood people. I like that term. I'll have to remember that one. <laughs> I mean, you're one Is of there... them, right? So. <laughs> right. I mean, I'll introduce myself to new people that way now. I'm a wonky yes. wood person. Put on your business card. <laughs> Perfect. Is there, with that in mind, you know, would you recommend not tapping as deep or as a recommended tapping depth that you have for red maple? I know that some people will like as a general rule, tap red maples more shallow than their sugar maples. So like they would recommend a, a one and a half inch tapping depth for red maples. I don't super love just universally saying tap all red maples with a shallower tapping depth. I think you're going to know from experience with the red maples in your woods, if you have that phenotype, if the red maples tend to have that characteristic, and you often see it on wet sites, like the real low sites. That's not a universal rule either, but that is one of the places we see this more. 
or places where there's real slow growth. So I recommend, yes, maybe consider a shallower tapping depth, but generally only after you're kind of sure that you have this phenotype. And the other way that you know you have it is if you've done some thinning or you know stand improvement in that area, and some of the younger red maples that you've cut have that feature, it's kind of a clue that some of its neighbors might also have it. Yeah, I would agree. Not from a, a research data collection standpoint, but from just my own experience tapping some of those trees that I mentioned that are in our low sites tend to kind of be that way. Yeah. And the area that we use for this research actually is kind of a low wet area. But for whatever reason, the trees that we use don't seem to have that feature. And that one other caveat about the sap yield results that we observed in our study is that if our red maples didn't have this feature, which we're pretty sure they didn't, you know, it's possible that red maples that do have that feature, because they have such a lower amount of conductive sapwood, those kinds of trees could have lower yield than a, a red maple with lots of conductive sapwood. So that's one pretty big caveat with our yield results producers could keep in mind. Another question kind of along that line a little bit, and I've gotten this question before and I'm sure you have is, you know, so red maple when they're younger tend to have, can have, not always, but have smoother and thinner bark. And so sometimes when you tap those trees, you know, you'll see cracks that form vertically above and below that tap hole in the bark. You know, is there any damage that's causing beyond just that tap hole? Oh, I wish I could take credit for this, but that was actually part of the genius of Tim Wilmot's previous study. One of the things he really wanted to look at was what's going on underneath those lengthy cracks that can happen that really look kind of, you know, like they look bad, you know? Um, yeah, and do. so he dissected a number of red maples that had that long crack following the, uh, the tap hole wound, and he found that they were superficial. So it did not translate. They were just in the outer bark and didn't translate into any damage um, in the actual interior of the sapwood of the tree. Good. That's that's great to hear. That's a, a win for red maple. Worth tapping them. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Uh, so let's get into thinking about flavor of actual finished syrup. So you wanted to to look at that. That's an important factor, right? And so how did you look at that? It's a little bit more complicated than just cook some down on a stovetop, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, it's one thing, you know, when we finish the yield study, it's like, okay, it's one thing to say that they have the same yields as sugar maple, but if they did start making buddy flavored syrup like two weeks before the sugar maple, then those yield numbers actually wouldn't be equal, right? Because you wouldn't be making the same amount of grade A maple syrup. So it was really important to take a look at that. And yeah, you're right. In order to really understand what the flavor of syrup is in a meaningful way relative to commercial maple production, we needed to do that on a pretty big scale. And so to do that, we found about 500 individual red and sugar maple trees growing in the same stand, so co-located across the Proctor Center here and set them up on separate tubing systems, but with the same vacuum pump, collected them separately. And then we used our maple processing research facility here, which has the you know identical evaporators that allows us to process different types of sap under identical conditions. And so what we did in this case, once we had our separate red and sugar maple sap for each run, 
we would concentrate it to the same sap concentration again because that's pretty important if there is a difference in the sap sugar concentration between the two species if we just used raw sap that would change the length of time that the sap was in the evaporator to make syrup and could really make things different just because of the different sugar concentration so we concentrated the sap to eight percent and then we uh, processed that sap separately in identical evaporators with all the same conditions, collected it separately. So we have syrup made from pure red maple sap and pure sugar maple sap. And then after the season was over, we did sensory evaluation experiments to see, is there an overall difference in the flavor of those two syrups made with everything identical except one was red maple and one was sugar maple? That's a lot of work, and so thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's no joke. It is really no. It sounds so simple, but it is. It, it does not sound easy. simple, but it's yeah. It's keeping that all separate, and you have to have those identical boilers, and it has to be sat from that same time period, right? It can't just be I'll do one one day and the other another day because that could be different flavor, right? Like right. And once one thing goes wrong with one thing you're completely done with every bit of that sap that you collected and God help you if it's something that affected the sweet was it, that was in the pans because then that's ruined too. So it's like, it's high stakes, man. It's really, I'm happy not to be doing one of those experiments this year. You need a year off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And it's, you're resweetening the pan every day you do that, right? Like you're starting with a clean evaporator. In this experiment, no. In this experiment, we keep the same sweet. So it's a perfect representation of what happens in a sugar house, but it's not like a perfectly independent trial. So with statistics, we have to be a little bit careful. But from a maple production standpoint, it's actually perfectly replicates what happens in a real maple operation across the season. Okay. And did you do this anytime you had, you know, a, a sap run that was worth boiling or did you only do it a select number of times throughout the season? Yeah, we well, we ended up doing it a select number of times that ends up being the number of times we had enough sap volume to get enough concentrate volume to run the experiment. Because, you know, you can't just like get a tiny little bit of concentrate, turn on the evaporators for three seconds and then call it a day. You need to be able to know that you're going to make syrup out of that. So, so we ended up doing it four times across the season. And actually, there are, of course, some days where something goes wrong and you miss it because of that. So there were <laughs> there were some mulligans in there also. But so we ended up doing it four times across the season. And fortunately for us, we were able to get a lot of that end of season where we really have those questions about, you know, is there a difference in late season off flavor? It's one of the bigger questions. We kind of probably don't care as much if there's some kind of difference between the two, as long as they taste good. The real question is like, is somehow that late season off flavor coming in earlier in the red maple than it is in the sugar maple? Yeah, so you set up a sensory panel where you did a blind tasting of this, right? And how did that turn out for you? Yeah, the way that we do it, we do what's called a triangle test, which basically allows us for, say, a pair of samples, like the pair of syrup samples we produced on a particular day with red and sugar maple. It is blind, and it allows you to answer the question, is there any overall difference in flavor between these two? Basically, it's very like Sesame Street. You get like 
in opaque bottles, the panelist gets two of one pair and one of the other, and they're supposed to taste all three and tell you which one is different. And, you know, they all get it in a different order and things like that to make it, it, it's all randomized. So it's a really good indication if enough people correctly identify which one is different, it's a pretty good indication that those two have some kind of difference in flavor. And so we did those tests for the first pair we produced and the last pair we, we produced. And the last pair, literally, I was producing the day after the peepers are peeping, like it's hot, it's nasty, like things are getting really gross <laughs> and late season for sure. So we were really curious to see what shook out in terms of the results. And so for the earliest, the first pair of syrups we produced, enough panelists correctly identified the different sample in those trios that there is a slight significant difference in overall flavor between the red and sugar maple syrup on that first time. So basically like first part of the season, but there was no significant difference in the flavor of the syrups produced on that last date. And that was actually key because if there was some kind of difference in what red maples were doing toward the end of the season in terms of like buddiness or late season off flavor, we would expect to see a difference in the flavor between that last pair. And there was no difference detected at all. Hmm, that's really interesting to hear. But earlier on, you, you know, you said you had a slight difference. Can you try to capture, quantify what that difference was? Was it, was it positive? Right. Actually, right now, we don't know whether what it was or whether it was uh, preferred or not preferred because we hadn't haven't run any of those tests. We only have the test to say there was a slight difference there. So we're doing follow up first with just looking at the chemistry data of the volatile aroma and flavor compounds in those syrups to see if we can pick out any major differences in like the compounds that were present. And if that doesn't bear fruit, then what we can do is do another sensory test, either a preference test to see if one is preferred over the other, which is kind of a, a, a rabbit hole really, but it's still interesting. Or we can do a directional difference test if we have a, an idea based on the chemistry data, if we see like, and I'm not saying that this is what we saw, this is an example, but like say we saw more maple flavor compounds in one versus the other, then we could do a separate sensory test called a directional difference test to see if the difference in flavor of one of the syrups was due to having more maple flavor. That would be the target question. So we kind of have to wait to see what the chemistry data show to direct those tests. But honestly, the there was only one additional correct response over the number needed for there to be a barely significant difference. So it is a difference, but it is a very small difference. Let's say probably very, very subtle. So you're doing this very scientifically, you know, this isn't just having a beer with friends sampling some syrup, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Because basically I'm the sugar maker making this syrup. I had lots of observations in the sugar house and I can rely on almost none of them for the science, right? I could tell you all sorts of things, but they're essentially meaningless from a scientific perspective because it, they weren't controlled. They're just my impressions during the sugar making process. I have to wait for all of these other people to scientifically taste the syrup to really 
get an idea of what was going on. Yeah, to truly debunk myths, that's how it needs to be done. But with that said, are you willing to objectively share what you think, in your personal opinion, the difference in flavor was between that early season red and sugar maple syrup? Honestly, so so from my subjective impression in that first sample, it is very difficult to articulate what the difference is. I don't even, I don't have the words for it. It's so subtle. There's no particular flavor that seems to be more pronounced in one versus the other. It's just like a subtle difference that is very hard to name. However, I'm currently getting trained as a descriptive sensory panelist. So maybe when I'm finished that training, I will have a better answer for that question. (laughs) Yeah, but it's safe to say that it's not a negative difference. They're just... Oh, gosh, no. Every batch of syrup every day is different. That doesn't mean that one's bad over the other. They're just different. That's right. That's right. And that I can say that, you know, the panelists that do the difference testing, they are allowed to write comments about any of the syrups that they taste. And they don't have to, but, you know, they can if they want to. And there were many volunteered comments about how good the syrup flavor was. And that was for both types of syrup, both the red maple and the sugar maple. So it was some pretty tasty syrup, according to these panelists. And according to me, I thought it was some very, very good syrup, both types. The difference there is hard to name, and it is very subtle. We'll give you a blue ribbon. Well, thanks. And yeah, I mean, you should come over come over to the Proctor Center next time, and you can taste it. Yeah, yeah, I do need to go try some of that syrup. So you're still at this point, you mentioned you're looking at the different compounds, so you don't have any results to share on differences between the sap and syrup of red versus sugar maple. Right. The chemistry data is ongoing at the moment. So we expect to have more data on that fairly soon. This is part of an ACER access and development grant that was awarded to the University of Vermont. So we have a a few of the outputs for that remaining to do, including an informative video about tapping red maple, you know, everything from the yields to, you know, some of the best practices that we talked about to the flavor. So look forward to that coming down the pike sometime this summer, as well as, of course, a lot of other outreach, which this is helping with too. I, I love it when one Acer project helps another Acer project with its outputs. It's all good. Definitely. Where, Abby, can folks go if they want to learn you know, more about the work that you have done, any of the, the published results so far? That's a great question. There are a couple of presentations on the Proctor Center's YouTube channel at the Vermont Maple Sugar Makers conferences from this past December. That recorded presentation online has the full scope, uh, including the flavor results. That'll soon be posted on PMRC's YouTube channel as well, but it it will take a minute to get there. Stay tuned for, like I said, the video sort of more informative about, you know, best practices and things like that will be upcoming also on the YouTube channel. For now, I think that's those are probably the best leads. Great. Well, thank you so much, Abby, for being here and look forward to hearing a lot more about the new updates that come out of the work that you continue to do with the red versus sugar maples. Thank you. Yeah, well, stay tuned. I'm looking forward to see what we find out, you know, the remaining questions that we have to answer. I'm really looking forward to see what we see. Great. Well, thank you, Abby. Thanks, Adam. Well, Aaron, it was an informative discussion with Abby. 
And bottom line, there's nothing wrong with tapping red maple trees for syrup production and turning that sap into syrup. Yeah, I did a small comparison of red and sugar maple sap production a few years ago. I actually did it over a couple of years. It wasn't a really rigorous study because it was a side project, but I gathered enough data to see some similar results to what Abby saw. That's great to hear that your data is consistent with Abby's, you know, and that's a win for red maples. Was there anything that surprised you in her study? No, not at all, Adam. And to kind of get on my soapbox here, you know, I've been a maple producer off and on for a long time, stretching way back to my childhood in the 1970s and 80s. And I grew up with a lot of rules that were based in conventional wisdom for maple production. And I think a lot of other people have had this same experience. There were rules like, don't tap red maples because they have low production and bud out early. But when I got involved with maple research and started really digging into these questions, I was pretty shocked at how little data was available on them and realized that these rules were not backed by solid evidence. And that opens up a lot of questions for re-examination. You know, there's all kinds of things that are based on conventional wisdom in the maple world, but I think this is the big one, the red maple question. And because red maples constitute such a huge number of potential taps. It's a really important question. So I'm glad Abby's doing this type of rigorous study and getting some good answers for us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is a really important point. And it is interesting to see where the research world within Maple has provided some concrete answers for us, you know, especially within the red maple. And of course, there's always still more questions to answer when it gets into the chemistry and flavor and learning more about the bud break and how that impacts flavor of the syrup at the end of the year. So you tap quite a few red maples at the Arnott Forest, and we tap a few here at the E-Line, but not quite as many. Have you noticed differences in the way that red maples need to be tapped versus a sugar maple? Yeah, and this is a really key point to kind of bring this full circle, this conversation about conventional wisdom versus good recommendations based on rigorous studies. If you're a maple producer, this is the type of thing that's really helpful to stay current on the research because we're finding out things like that red maples have pretty equivalent sugar production to sugar maples, but there's still a lot left to learn. For example, tapping practices, because if you've tapped a lot of red maples like I have, you notice that they have a different structure a lot of times, right? They, they tend to have more structural defects a lot of times because they grow on more marginal sites, either dry sites or, or wet sites, and you might have to modify your tapping practices a little bit. And this is something we really do need to study more rigorously, but I've found that, especially in wet sites, you tend to have more hollowness, so a shallower tap hole depth might be warranted there. And other times, it's really just a matter of spending more time examining the stem and making sure you have a good, healthy spot that's likely to have nice sapwood beneath it before you drill the hole, because a lot of red maples have those twisted structures and things like that, and you just have to be a little more careful about selecting your tap hole location. Yeah, I would agree. You know, where the red maples that we have within our forest tend to be in those more marginal sites and they're structurally not the best trees, but they still tend to be great producers. We just have to be careful when tapping them. I've found red maples that have been vacuum leaks because it's into a cavity and there's a split lower down where I can hear the air hissing through. Those are always fun to kind of come across in the woods, but obviously not great for a vacuum production system. Yeah, I've had the similar experience of tapping and having those vacuum leaks, but at the same time, in my study, the red maples I tapped for that were pretty ugly. They weren't the best trees at all. They had partial crown death in some trees and they were growing in swampy areas. One was hollow 
and their sugar content was somewhat low, but they actually outperformed the sugar maples just because they put out such a great sap volume, so much more sap. So it's really interesting to see how all these different variables play out. Yeah, so it's something that we'll need to keep monitoring over time. And there's lots of areas for new research and we keep working on. And one, as you know, Abby mentioned, that we don't know what actually impacts the buddy flavor of syrup, right? That, you know, we know that it happens around the time of year that buds are opening, but it could be something totally different, right? Yeah, isn't it funny how that got kind of built into our conventional wisdom? But we have the tools now, I think, with the different types of equipment that we can do quick chemical analysis with to start answering some of those questions. So hopefully we'll understand that a little better in the future, but I think we're a ways from knowing the answer to that question yet. So in the meantime, a lot of the work we're doing at the Arnott Forest in our experimental kitchen is trying to find good uses for buddy syrup that we make. And I think when we bring up buddy syrup, which, you know, it is kind of funny thing about that it may have nothing to do with the buds, but there's also a large kind of parameters of flavors, right, with buddy syrup. But I know you've been doing a little bit of research down at the Arnott Forest. Try to kind of classify that a little more. Right. We kind of lump everything under the placeholder label of buddy at the end of the season. Once it starts to take on that kind of chocolatey Tootsie Roll flavor of early buddiness, as we, we name it. But it's not really necessarily all the same phenomena causing all these different flavors. But there is a huge range. And that would indicate that if we're going to use this stuff, if we make it, that we probably have to figure out what the different flavor profiles are. So we've we've done some sensory analysis with the sensory program at Cornell, and we've actually created a flavor wheel for buddy flavors. And that's something that we'll be distributing soon. Yeah, that's really neat because there's buddy syrup I've had that tastes great. You know, I would cook with it and use it for a lot of different food products, but then there's also kind of that late buddy syrup that's gotten some real kind of late season funk to it um, to kind of put it in a blunt way. So it is a big variation and it's important to be able to classify that out a little bit more. Yeah. And to think outside of the box and instead think, what can I do with this that's valuable? Yeah, that's a really important point. Kind of wrapping this all up and thinking about everything, it just emphasizes that we really need to look more at the research and the good data and information and literature that's out there and not just going on some of these anecdotes, but, you know, going towards the Maple News or the new Maple Syrup Producers Manual, the Maple Digest as well, are great resources to point towards for information and not just going by, you know, kind of the myths and anecdotes that we've heard for many generations. Yeah, we're definitely in a, a phase where we're learning a lot with research right now. and We're growing this industry and really starting to tap into the potential for tree sap products. So, We'll have a lot of things to discuss in future episodes, and hopefully we'll have some more interesting questions like this where we can kind of dispel the myths. Look forward to talking about this more on future episodes of Sweet Talk. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk, all things maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.